Spotify is a streaming music service that uses data science extensively to recommend music to customers, generate playlists, and build lots of other aspects of the product. Boxen Zhang is a data scientist at Spotify. Boxen, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. My pleasure. So prior to your work as a data scientist at Spotify, you did a PhD in parallel and distributed systems. What is the overlap between distributed systems and data science? Well, I think this really depends uh, because within distributed system study, uh, there are many different fields people focus. So if your focus, or no, if your research focus is on, let's say, measuring system dynamics or modeling system behavior or user behavior in large-scale distributed systems, I would say it's quite similar to most of the data science work uh, carried on in companies. It's, it's very, I mean, the procedure is very, like, you know, very much like you set up some measurement uh, you know, uh, infrastructure, you start collecting data, then you have the data, you clean the data, you look at the data, you generate some insights, and in the end, the insights either end up in an academic publication or ended up in a, co- a company report. I think in that sense, the overlap is quite big. You know, the gap is very small if you want to jump from your PhD in that part into data science work. But on the other hand, if your focus is more on algorithm and protocol design for distributed system, for example, you want to say, I want to develop a super strong fault tolerance algorithm for data storage for large-scale distributed systems, then I would say your focus is more on the more computer science side, you know, not much on the data science side. So in that case, the gap is there. Interesting. So I feel like data science is uh, somewhat of a newer term. And in the past, there were certainly data analytics and stuff that people would do just, you know, using a database. Um, but, you know, maybe the term data science started coming around as the term distributed systems also started being uh, widely important. Um, do you think there is this, is there some some kind of chronological overlap between when data science started becoming prominent and when distributed systems started being really important? So I, I think this is a very interesting question. So the way I see it is, so when I think this, you know, these two parts really started when the term big data uh, gets started. So when people, at a certain point, when people realize they have too much data to store for single machines, and then people start thinking about, okay, we should have Hadoop, we should have HDFS, all kinds of distributed uh, storage system. And I think that's also the time people realize using the traditional tools or techniques to analyze data becomes more and more challenging. And, and, and I mean, that's the time when people start looking into more advanced uh, techniques or models or tools to, to analyze the data. I think that's more like the, the way I see why data science uh, came to the scene, you know, after data analytics. So there's certainly a, uh, a uh, sort of overlap uh, between these two. Yeah. So let's talk about Spotify. From from a high level, what what is Spotify's approach to machine learning and data science? So I think Spotify now is quite big. You know, it's not really like a small startup anymore. So we have lots of teams working on very different projects over the company. And apparently different teams have different approaches. But from what I know, 
Spotify's you know many Spotify te- uh, teams take a very applied approach when it comes to machine learning or data science, which means we spend lots of time researching the problems we have. And then we apply existing techniques, either from machine learning or data science, to our problems. Then, you know, we get our result. So, you know, but on the other hand, we also have, you know, teams building our recommender systems who spend lots of time researching new models or new method that suits our need. So I would say it's more like a, a hybrid approach. Okay, interesting. I, I saw a slide share from Spotify that explored the evolution of big data at Spotify. That's what it's called, the evolution of big data at Spotify. I'll put it in the show notes. Um, I'd like to go through some of that history, and hopefully as we go along, we can tie in how this big data architecture feeds into the practice of data science at Spotify. Um, but I guess from your point of view, how has Spotify's big data architecture evolved over time? So this this could be a fa- fairly long story, but I will cut <laughs> it short. Um, so when, when I joined Spotify, that was at the beginning of 2013. So back then we had about around 200 nodes, maybe slightly more than 200 nodes in our Hadoop cluster. And nowadays, if you look at the cluster, I think we have more than 1,500 nodes and it's still growing. So this, the scale of the cluster is totally different nowadays. And during this, you know, two years, there are lots of things happened. So but the first, first, we switched from a, a system called Log Archiver to Kafka for more efficient and reliable log delivery to HDFS. And we sw- switched away from Hadoop streaming uh, using Python to Crunch for more efficient uh, data processing. And also during this time, we built a lot of tools around Hadoop. So, you know, for our internal users, so we can easily use uh, the, 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 the cluster. So, for example, uh, one tool we built is a sort of you know, data retention uh, platform. Previously, without this tool, you can easily delete one terabyte of data, you know, by one, one bash command line. Uh, but now with this retention tool, we can actually, you know, save the data in a sort of, you know, trash can for each user. So if you mistakenly delete the data, you can actually get it back. So we have, we have built lots of those small tools that makes the whole experience uh, getting better and better over time. Great. Yeah, we can, we can go through some of those, uh, those points individually. Um, but as a data scientist, do you need to understand this big data architecture well, or do you just need to understand how you consume the outputs of this architecture? Mm, I, I would say this depends on your background, you know, as a data scientist. So, so for me, I my background is purely in computer science. So for me, it's quite straightforward to understand the underlying technology stack. Uh, but I can also imagine for data scientists who come from different backgrounds, for example, physics or chemistry, uh, you know, there might be a gap to understand the underlying uh, you know, uh, technology. And also for many cases, I wouldn't really say it's necessary to understand the underlying technology because in the end, data scientists really focus on the data. So, so to, you know, to put it in a more extreme uh, context, I wouldn't really say 
once I have the data, I don't really care where the data come from, to be honest. As long as I, may, I can make sure the data is correct, it's reliable, I can, you know, as long as I understand what's going on, it's, it's fine. We did a show recently about data engineering. There's like this this kind of new term called the data engineer that, uh, you know, in some in some companies, the data engineer will be, you know, will kind of do this stuff like data cleaning and uh, setting up these data pipelines and really try to relieve the operational burden from the data scientist so that the data scientist can really think more about statistics and how to build machine learning models, I guess. And, um, but do you, I mean, do you see this as a dichotomy or does this, does this separation of roles exist at Spotify or do, are there the, do the data scientists like yourself, do you also do a fair amount of data engineering? Um, It certainly exists in Spotify because when the company or when your data grows to a certain scale, I mean, I think these two aspects of, you know, let's say data science work, you know, becomes very much separable and it requires very different skill set. So in Spotify, I would say data, data engineers have a much stronger emphasis on the computer science skills, you know, the skills for building reliable backend uh, systems. And also, you know, of course, they should also have a, so, you know, more like data, uh, data-driven mentality. So, for example, you know, people should be more sensitive to uh, errors in data. You know, for example, if you know, they should have a sense of data quality. You know, about all outliers. You know, some weird numbers going on when they build the pipeline. You know, they should have a sense of that. But uh, you know, that's not really their main focus. Their focus is really on the infrastructure to 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 make the infrastructure more reliable, more accessible to data scientists. And on the other hand, data scientists are, as you said, I mean, data scientists really focus on the more statistical skills, machine learning skills, and modeling skills. So we do have this uh, separation. What kinds of data is Spotify using? What kinds of data do you have to accumulate and, and like at what volume? So as for Spotify, we collect data from our client. So we can understand, you know, how users use the, the product so we can improve the product in the future. So if you look at our Hadoop ecosystem, basically, you know, our HDFS storage. So we have more than 40 petabyte of data. So every day we have about 30 terabyte of data ingested from Kafka and our own pipelines also generate another 400 terabyte of data within our Hadoop cluster. Um, if you look at, you know, look outside the Hadoop cluster, you know, count all the servers we have, how, you know, and also the raw audio files we have, you know, for our service, we probably have more than 200 petabyte of data and is growing pretty fast as well. Okay. And I've heard that data scientists often spend up to 80% of their time cleaning data. I mean, as you said, uh, certainly at a mature organization, like Spotify, you know, maybe you've broken up the the role of data cleaning into uh, a, se- a separate um, type of employee. Um, but also, you could just have tools and processes in place, um, or just be collecting the data in a well formed fashion that reduces the amount of time 
spent cleaning data. So I'm just curious about the data collection process and how that has become, well, just from an organizational standpoint, how, how do you organize the data? How do you, um, how do you reduce the amount of time that you would otherwise spend cleaning that data? So I think the way we do it is to set up dedicated teams responsible for the process of data ingestion and data cleaning or building the core data sets that are used by other data scientists or other teams. So by aggregating the responsibility of, you know, cleaning the data, I mean, the amount of time, you know, needed from other teams or other data scientists to clean the data is reduced dramatically. But uh, in reality, that's not, no, that's, no, not, not all the case, because the, the knowledge each team has about, you know, how they should clean the data is often limited. And also, as we discover more and more insights from our data, we will learn more details about, you know, learn, let's say, more knowledge about how should we clean data. We will identify more, let's say, outliers in various uh, uh, use cases. So I would say in Spotify, there's a, there are a few teams you know, responsible for cleaning the data for the whole company, building the core data set. And when data scientists or other teams start using those data sets, we will do another round of data cleaning. But those cleaning are more for specific use cases. As you said, there was a period of time where Spotify had an architecture called Log Archiver that interfaced with Hadoop. Can you tell me more about Log Archiver? Certainly. So Log Archiver was a system we used to deliver our logging data from our servers, like we call it uh, access point, to our HDFS storage. So, so that's the system. We, that's the system we built a long time ago, and it was built around RSync and SCP, and we crown those jobs. Uh, you know, so it runs regularly to transfer data from our servers to our data center. So it's it was a very simple tool uh, overall. And why why did it fail on a regular basis? So I mean, as you can tell, I mean, if we have scripts, uh, you know, using rsync and SCP, and it was crowned, so <laughs> you know, it's, it's not such a big surprise to see you know it fails every now and then because you basically have very little control, very little monitoring going on there, and. I mean, that's not the only reason why we replaced it later with the Kafka. Another reason is the performance for delivering the log is was really poor. So the time needed for the data to be transferred from the server to HDFS was around a few hours. That was a very long time, especially compared to the performance we gained by using Kafka. So speaking of Kafka, Kafka now is used by Spotify to accomplish what Log Archiver used to accomplish. What were the benefits of starting to use Kafka? So I would say there are there are a few big uh, benefits. So the first one is a performance. Uh, either, I mean, from both the throughput point of view and also from the time we need to transfer the data. So throughput-wise, you know, Kafka is great. You know, we can transfer lots of data in very short time without any problem. And also the amount of time needed to transfer the data to 
our storage to HTTPS is reduced from hours, you know, the time we used, uh, you know, when we use log archiver to seconds. So I would say it's that's a significant uh, improvement over uh, uh, performance. Uh, another benefit is scalability. So we don't have to crown the Kafka drops like what we did for log archiver, and it's designed to scale to to large uh, systems. So I would say those are the two major benefits we, we gain by using Kafka. Are there any unique use cases for how you are using Kafka at Spotify that the listeners might find interesting? So I would say um, one interesting point is Spotify doesn't really use the vanilla version of Kafka. Um, we actually build lots of custom parts or components around Kafka for our use case. So back then we started using Kafka 0.7. Uh, I think that was the time Kafka doesn't support like replication or more doesn't you know have the reliability guarantee. So we actually build custom components for a reliable end-to-end delivery by enabling replication of the, the 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 messages, and also we build our own components for encry- encryption and compression for our data. So. Together with Kafka and our customized uh, customized components, you know, we actually, you know, it suits our uh, uh, use case. Okay, got it. Um, Spotify also created a tool called Luigi. What is Luigi? So Luigi is a tool for building complex data pipeline or any pipeline in general. So. Luigi is very similar to other build automation tools like Make and Ant. So, what's the you know the scenario we are targeting is so let's say you want to build a machine learning model, and to build a model you have to fetch data from multiple data sources. You know, for example, you can get data from a Postgres database, and then you want to use the some data from um, Hadoop cluster. And then you want to combine these two data sources together and feed the data into the machine learning uh, uh, pipeline. And then you want to output the result into another Postgres database. And Luigi is a framework that facilitates this process. We can basically, Luigi helps us to help us to chain all those pipelines together in a very easy way. So we don't have to do it manually and it handles all the dependencies uh, really well. When you chose to build Luigi, were there any open source alternatives already existing that you could have considered? Um, I'm not quite sure. Uh, probably there are some, but I'm, I'm. But my guess is, I mean, Luigi probably. But I mean, Luigi was built a long time ago, and I guess even though there were some alternatives out there, probably none of them were very few of them fit Spotify's use case because back then Spotify was using um, Hadoop streaming drastically and also we have our own unique uh, use case. So I believe the reason why we built Luigi is we didn't find any alternative that fit into our own use case. So what are the problems that, the the big problems that you encountered with Hadoop uh, in, in the past and in the present, and what what are the persistent themes in the Hadoop uh, problems that you encounter at Spotify? 
So in the past, I think uptime was a big problem. Um, that was more like before 2013. So the uptime of our Hadoop cluster, the small cluster we had, was not so great. So that basically make the, the cluster not that usable if you see, okay, the cluster is, is down very often. And now the cluster is very stable. It runs very smoothly. Um, so then, you know, the problem we have, I wouldn't, I wouldn't really call it a problem because we have a fast-growing need for data and insights. So there are so many pipelines running. So we always run into this uh, contention problem. You know, we are sort of competing within Spotify for the Hadoop cluster to run our own data pipelines. Got it. So let's zoom out a bit and talk about the end user experience, the end user benefits from the big data tools that you have in place. From an end user point of view, how did the experience improve uh, due to the uh, imp- improvements in big data architecture uh, from tools like Kafka and Luigi? Like, uh, I know that's that's sort of an indirect um, you know, long-term improvement that would result, but what did improve over time? So I would say by having more advanced tools uh, in our big data ecosystem, I think the biggest improvement is the, let's say, the feedback loop or the time we need to build a core data set that supports user-facing features. And also, since the time we need to build those data set is reduced drastically over time, we have more time to actually do more quality control of the data set to make sure everything is correct. So overall, I think that's already a big gain for the company because you know with those tools in place, we actually it's pretty easy and feasible to support lots of user-facing features using our data. Now that we've talked about Spotify's architecture in an abstract sense, in the in the big data architectural sense, let's talk about the type of work that such an architecture supports, like the type of data science that you're doing. What what do you work on at Spotify? What is the type of uh, data science work that you're doing day to day? So, in in the past, I've done all kinds of work, uh, you know, under the data science term, uh, quite, you know, quite a bit. Uh, but nowadays, I spend most of, a, most of my time doing long-term projects. And recently, I spend most of my time studying user sessions and its properties, basically how users use our app in, in general. Tell me about your workflow. Like, what would be a problem that you would solve and how would you approach it and what technologies would you use? So I would say I don't really have a very fixed workflow, but one one thing is pretty sure, I'm pretty sure is I always start with a problem and I always start to define a problem. Um, so after I have the problem, I start collecting some data, you know, from Hadoop or HTFS or some database. And then I will look at the data, clean the data a little bit, you know, do some exploratory statistic analysis. And after that, I spent fairly amount of time reading academic papers. And basically, I try to get to know what have been done by other companies or by other universities in, in the past. 
and then I come up with my own uh, solution. And after that, I build simple prototype. If the prototype works well, I talk to engineer engineering team so to see if we want to build a proper uh, uh, system around it. So regarding the technologies, um, I, I would say I use pretty standard uh, uh, tools. So to get the data, to prepare the data, I use Hadoop, and to analyze the data, analyze the data or building or to build models, I use Python and R. Um, I find IPython notebook or Jupyter notebook nowadays is particularly useful for sharing and reviewing others' work. Uh, one, one last point is recently I started using XGBoost, a very popular tool, uh, machine learning uh, library uh, among Kaggle uh, users. And we, I mean, that's a library for building boosted trees or gradient boosting models. And the performance is really superb. And I would really recommend, you know, the, your, the, the audience to, uh, to check it out. Could you talk about that tool in more detail? Like, how does it, uh, how, give, give an example for how you might use that tool. You don't have, it doesn't have to be a Spotify related example. I don't know, maybe if you were studying oil data or something. Um, sure. Sure. So, so XGBoost is a library, or is it more like a general-purpose uh, implementation for gradient boosting uh, models? And what is gradient boosting? Gradient boosting model is more like a tree ensemble, you know, similar to random forest. But the difference is, you know, unlike random forest, you know, the model will build lots of decision trees at the same time. But gradient boosting models will build one tree at each time. And each tree is built upon the data that was not, I mean, that the previous model didn't perform well. So it's more like a process of self-correcting. So after proper tuning, in lots of practical use cases, I find find out uh, boosting models uh, outperform random forest uh, in many cases. So that's why I... um, in Spotify, I started using uh, Boosted Trees uh, model. And this XGBoost library actually offers lots of interfaces to all other major languages used by data scientists, uh, like Python, R, uh, Julia. So it's extremely easy to use. So there are probably some listeners who are confused by some of these uh, machine learning terms. Could you define what a random forest is? Sure. So random forest, you know, as the name suggests, is basically a bunch of decision trees. So, and the way random forest is built is each decision tree in the forest is trained by a random sample of training data and randomly selected features. So in this way, random forest performs really well when there are lots of noise in the data. So the model is really robust because, because of this two-fold randomization. When you say random features, what, how are those features uh, approached? Or like what, maybe you could define the term feature in the, in the scope of a random forest. So, so, so the feature is, you know, is, is like feature in all other machine learning uh, you know, models. Basically, it's just like a numerical represent- representation of your data. It's basically one value or one column in your uh, you know, a training sample. And the randomization here in random forest basically is about uh, 
For, for example, if your training set has 10 different features, 10 different columns, and random forest will take a random subset of these 10 columns to train a decision for a uh, decision tree. So let's say, you know, one decision tree can be trained by the first five uh, columns and the other decision tree can be trained by another random, you know, four or six uh, columns in your training set. And in a given tree is, is the goal of the, is the goal to, to minimize or maximize this column or it, like, does the, does the user define that or how, how does that work? So, so the goal of each tree is the same as the goal for the random forest. For example, uh, the goal of a uh, machine learning task would be, I want to predict if a user will stream a song. And each tree will have the same goal, but using different training set, uh, you know, to train. Mm, okay, I understand. Um, so, so when you're looking across... Uh, these different trees, um, you're looking for like consistent patterns in uh, how the different data sets that the different trees uh, have have correlated. So, so imagine if you have let's say 1,000 trees uh, trying to predict if a object is a cat, let's say. So when you have all the trees uh, trained, it becomes a voting problem. So for example, you can have 800 out of 1,000 trees say, okay, that object is indeed a cat. And the other 200 trees may, might say, okay, no, that object is not a cat. So in the end, you're, you will do a majority vote. You will take, you know, you will basically conclude, okay, that object is a cat because, you know, 800 out of 1,000 trees say so. Mm. Um, in that case, you know, the model will be much, much more reliable and accurate compared to one single decision tree because one single decision tree is very vulnerable to noise in the data. So this process of looking across the different trees and doing a majority vote, is that's ensembling? Yeah. Okay. And... Is there a way to do ensembling where you're not looking for a uh, a binary outcome? Like if you're like, what if you have a gradient of potential outcomes? Can you still do ensembling that way? Yes, yes, that's totally possible because random forest can be used for both classification and regression problem, and the same for uh, uh, boosting models, gradient boosting models as well. Okay, cool. So I'd like to define some other data science uh, terms, some statistical terms while we're uh, on this topic. What is k-means clustering? Well, k-means clustering is probably, you know, the arguably, arguably the, the most uh, popular uh, clustering algorithm, uh, you know, used out there. So it's extremely simple. So assuming you have, you know, 100 observations and you say I run a k-mean clustering algorithm to cluster those 100 observations into five clusters. So the algorithm will basically assign those observations into those five uh, clusters with the goal of minimizing the within cluster distance of each observation to the mean in the cluster. 
So it might not be so clear from my description, but if you <laughs> think if you think about it, you know, each cluster will have a centroid, so the central point of the cluster. And by assigning different observation into different clusters, you will be able to calculate this distance between each observation to the center of the cluster. And the goal of the algorithm is to find out the way or the centroid that can minimize the distance, the sum of the distance of all the observations within each cluster to the centroid. So basically, if the algorithm is successfully run, you will have clusters that have observations very close to each other. Another term that we often hear when we're talking about machine learning and data science is gradient descent or statistical gradient descent. What is this and why is it so important to machine learning and data science? So gradient descent is an algorithm that can find the local minimum of a function. So why you know basically the way it works is so when you have a function you know with a few parameters you sometimes you want to say i want to find the local minimum and the gradient descent actually you know do this by going to the negative direction of the deriv derivative of the function basically it's the gradient of the function so it's more like if you visualize this, you know, two-dimensional place, you know, uh, a space with the two parameters and the, the and also the value of the function is more like a, uh, you know, a contour plot. It's more like you're walking down to the, you know, of the mountain, you know, by applying gradient descent. And why it's important for machine learning is because if you look at linear regression, one probably one of the most important uh, machine learning algorithms out there. So the goal of linear regression is about minimizing the sum of squared residues between the predictions and the training uh, training data, and that can be uh, achieved by applying gradient descent because the sum of squared residues or the objective uh, function of linear regression can be expressed as you know the, the parameters uh, of the uh, of the model so by applying gradient descent we can actually find out those uh, parameters uh, very easily got it um so we did a show with a company called y hat which builds tools that allow data scientists to collaborate more easily with software engineers. Um, and, you know, it's, it's interesting because you you were talking about your work and you it sounds like you start off your work on a problem sort of siloed. Um, you know, you, you focus on this problem, you read the literature associated with it, you build some prototypes, uh, and then you think about, you know, is this a scalable solution? Should I give this uh, should I or either engineer this myself or hand it, hand it off to the software engineers? I'm, I'm curious about how the collaborative process between data scientists uh, and engineers works at Spotify. Specifically, like once you've moved beyond this this prototyping phase, how do you go to the phase of let's let's integrate this with with the uh, the engineering teams in a scalable fashion? I think this is a great question. I think a um, lot of companies, I think, are facing this problem now. So I would say, you know, the way 
I sort of discovered the problem to to work on is not really by you know doing literature study or looking at the data by myself. So the way I'm doing it, you know, and also is the way I find it very efficient is. I know I normally try to sit together or very close to a product team or engineering team. And by doing so, I get very close to the source of all kinds of challenging problems. So in that way, I can make sure all the problem I get are important problems to at least some teams in the company. So I will not have this you know, crazy idea no one will benefit from if I even if I can solve them. So that's I think that's a very important lesson I learned in the past when, uh, you know, when I uh, work in the Spotify. So first, you know, sit close, uh, closer, you know, with engineers and product teams. So you find, you know, important problems to work on. And so let's say we find a problem and, and build a prototype. And the problem now is how can we put it in production system? So there are multiple options for doing that. You know, one obvious one is you hand over the code. You know, there will be, let's say, proper engineers, you know, refactor your code and re-implement everything. And, but another way, another approach I took is I tried to make my own machine learning pipeline or the machine learning code as good as possible. So, it gets to a state that's almost ready to be integrated into a bigger pipeline. And even if the, the bigger pipeline is implemented in a different language, we have you know, different ways to chain them together. For example, you know, there might be some APIs you know, bridging different languages, for example, from Python to Java or from Python to C. Uh, or we can simply store the output of the machine learning pipeline into a commonly accessible a storage place like a database or HDFS uh, where another pipeline in the bigger system can pick it up later. Mm. So are you saying that like sometimes your your pro- the prototype or whatever code you write ends up being like just good enough for production, you just kind of have to plug it in and connect it to the right data store that other people are accessing? So I'm, I wouldn't really say it's always the case uh, because after doing the data science work for some time, I wouldn't really say I, I'm still writing, let's say, production-level code. Uh, but I, I mean, when I write, uh, let's say, machine learning pipelines, I try to make it as good as possible according to the best practice in software engineering to make sure it's maintainable, uh, let's say, extendable uh, in the in way. Mm. But still, I would say when we plug my, uh, let's say, machine learning pipeline or code into a bigger system, there are lots of things we need to maybe reconsider because there might be other use cases we want to tackle, you know, as a bigger system. So there will be changes uh, to the code. Yeah. So one interesting thing you said, you know, about sitting with the same, the people that are uh, encountering those uh, problems that you might end up wanting to tackle from a data science perspective. It reminds me of uh, when I used to work at this trading company, and they would sit the engineers somewhat close to the traders um, because the traders are you know constantly encountering these certain problems, and the engineers are building products for the traders. So it really makes a lot of sense to to have them 
kind of co-located with one another. Um, so I, I think this is interesting. You know, when you're building products for other people in the company, uh, you know, it's it makes sense to sit close to your users. Yes, I, I think the key benefit of doing this kind of embedding or sitting together or whatever we call it is we can shorten the feedback loop between different teams drastically. And sometimes it's very, very critical. So, f- for example, in Spotify, between engineering teams or product teams to data scientists or analysts, you know, sometimes if you don't sit together, people send emails across different teams and there's no guarantee how fast you can get feedback for anything. You know, sometimes it happens fairly, you know, fast. Sometimes it can take some time. But when you, when you sit together with, with, with each other, you don't even need to send emails or, you know, talking through some messaging uh, services. You can just talk to the guy next to you. Uh, you can just have a small chat and you can just resolve the problem. So I find it extremely valuable and encouraging, actually, because you can literally see small progresses are made. And that's very, like, that's a very nice feeling. Totally. So... We've done several shows recently on these different streaming systems. Um, this is kind of zooming out to to a bigger picture, but you know, there's all these streaming systems there's like Storm, Spark Streaming, Samza, Flink, all these different things. Um, I'm curious what your perspective is on why there are so many of these and uh, where we're going with all these different streaming systems. And maybe you could touch on how streaming systems are used at Spotify. Sure. So, first of all, I want to say I'm not an expert on the streaming system side, but um, my view on the the fact we have so many like new streaming systems coming out all the time these days is, I would say this is a sign of a new booming field or a very new uh, requirement or demand from the industry. So, previously, people were using Hadoop or other technology technologies for batch processing for quite a long time, I think in the past couple of years. And now people start realizing, okay, you know, we have the, you know, the data coming in all the time and we don't want to wait for a couple of hours until our data is ready. So streaming becomes a very natural next step, I would say. But at the same time, I think from the industry, there's very diversified demand uh, for using streaming system. People have very different use cases. And I would say none of the current streaming system is actually mature enough or big enough to cover all the use cases. That's why I think we are seeing so many new streaming systems you know, coming out and competing with each other. And personally, I think this is a you know, very nice thing to have. And you know, we, I think it's very promising for the near future. Maybe in one or two years, we will have one or two very mature streaming system in place many companies will use. So regarding, regarding Spotify, I think we use streaming system for a couple of use cases. Um, I think we have some, we, we use streaming system for ads targeting and we use streaming system for personalization um, and some other use cases. But it's not a huge use case in Spotify at this moment. Is that because the sensitivity of the uh, of of data processing is not super high? Like, I mean, I can imagine 
if a user listens to a song and then you need to run a machine learning algorithm on that user listening to a song, it's not a huge deal if the user's playlist gets updated in 24 hours or in 12 hours or whatever, rather than immediate? I, I would say it depends. So, for example, if you look at our new feature, Discover Weekly, you know, yeah. that feature is designed to, 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 to give you new songs in the playlist every week. So in that case, you know, using some batch processing, uh, you know, pipelines is not a problem at all. But on the other hand, you know, think about another use case. For example, we want to personalize our recommendation based on your recent search queries. So in that case, you know, having a few hours gap between the user actions and having the data in our system is not really acceptable, I would say, to build such features. So in the future, if we plan to do, to do more real-time recommendation or real-time features, you know, streaming system will become a must-have component. Hmm, makes sense. So there was uh, recently a a product that was open sourced out of Google called TensorFlow. Uh, I don't know if you've looked at this much, but uh, I'm curious if, if you have what you think of TensorFlow. So I would say, you know, ten, I mean, I would say everyone is looking or talking about TensorFlow now. Um, it's uh, it's a big thing from, uh, from Google, uh, certainly. So I haven't really spent too much time looking into the product, but from what I know, I can, I can only say... It's certainly very promising from the, the white paper uh, I got from, uh, from the, the website of TensorFlow. But I do need more time to try it out to see its real efficacy you know, for real data. Because TensorFlow itself is such a big product and it has so many components. I think many people, most of the people need lots, a lot more time to actually understand what it can do, what, what it cannot yeah, I spoke to Greg Corrado yesterday, who is one of the guys who works on TensorFlow, and uh, he was telling me about how, I didn't really understand this before I was interviewing him, but he was like, you can deploy machine learning models to people's phones, basically, and then have those models dynamically update with new information. And uh, maybe this is something that is not a huge new deal but you know I think of something like Spotify where if you already had if you had this pre-baked model deployed to your phone and it could update all on the client all on the phone then every time I listen to a new song you know the machine learning can happen on the phone uh I don't know maybe this is maybe this is not a new thing maybe this is something that that is already happening and that's not the big breakthrough of TensorFlow but well but I mean regardless of TensorFlow but I think I would say the the capability of deploying a model into user's device, I think is hugely valuable. Because if you think about the the traditional way of building recommender system, which is about getting all the users, let's say, listening, uh, you know, history, you know, what songs users listen and build this huge uh, matrix and doing fa- uh, matrix factorization and building lots of ensemble models in our server farms, you know, that takes a lot of time and use lots of data. But if we can have smaller models, you know, personalized to user level, we deploy them on each user's device, we can actually train those models or tweak those models based on, only based on users' own data. So in that case, the amount of time and, you know, energy needed to train those models is so, so much 
smaller or you know yeah. lesser than actually training a huge model for all the users, all the content we have. So I would say right. that thing itself is hugely um, valuable. And I think Google had the machine learning model in Google Photos or some other Google product deployed on Android phones already. Yeah, yeah. So it sounds like you're talking about the movement, like a movement from doing machine learning that is focused on things like collaborative filtering, where you need the entire user set versus just having something that is much more individual user specific. Yes, certainly. I mean, if you think about features like Google Now, the the personal assistance, uh, assistant, I mean, it's certainly a use case. For example, you know, the, the model only rely on individual users data, you know, probably it doesn't really care too much about what other users are doing. As long as it takes care of the, the current user, it's fine. Right. So let's let's zoom out even further. What is the future of data science? Like when you're when you're working day to day and you encounter certain operational problems or certain like systemic problems and you say, gosh, you know, in the future there's no way data science is going to have a problem X. Like, what are the problems that are going to get sorted out over time? How will data science change and become easier? So I would say in the future, I don't really know if the future is far future or near future. uh, But in the future, we will have lots of tools available for data scientists or anyone who works with the data that can, you know, takes over all the routine works nowadays data scientists need to do. For example, you know, running basic diagnosis over the data. For example, you know, I want to, once I have a more complicated, a very complex data set, I want to say, okay, you know, how, how my data set look like? And, you know, even though it sounds pretty simple, but it might take quite some time to, uh, to, 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 to do this because you have to run proper analysis for each column or each uh, variable in your data set. You have to do some anomaly detection. There are lots of routine works. I think those work will be taken over completely by automated tools. I think there are already some tools like Automatic Statistician uh, out there and SkyTree Infinity um, out there to, to, to do this kind of work. So I would say, you know, give those tools a few years, maybe three to five years. Those tools will be powerful enough to take over, to handle most of the routine uh, work for data scientists. And as a result, I think data scientists will be pushed into a place that you know people need to focus more on, let's say, feature engineering part. You know, basically, you focus, spend most of your time thinking about what kind of data you want to fit into those you know super awesome tools. So those tools or those you know platform can give you nice result. And also, people will focus more on interpreting the re- interpreting the results, you know, from those tools and convert those insights into, you know, the insights with the business values. Yeah, so maybe this is the interpretation uh, side that you're talking about. But how do you think we're going to move some of the job of the data scientist beyond a place that requires coding? Mm, I would say it's possible. I think, but I think, I think that also depends on the type of data science work. So, I, I think you know, it's very hard to predict if that will happen because I mean, nowadays with data science, with with the big data, with machine learning, there are so many 
possibilities for the future, even for the coming year. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I guess I'll, I want to close off with just a question. I would not normally ask this at at all, but uh, since you're since you work at Spotify, and I'm just like really curious, what what music do you listen to these days? What are you listening to? Well, I think recently I I listen lots of music from 70s or 80s, and I would say that's probably because the movie The Martian. Uh, oh, in in yeah. the in the movie they. They they really put in lots of uh, nice music from seventies and eighties. So like Starman from David Bowie, uh, I I don't know how many times I've listened to that song repeatedly. <laughs> um, and from from there, I, I started listening to, to 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 music from Bob Marley, Fleetwood Mac, uh, Queen, Eagles, Roxette, uh, The Bangles, you know, all sorts of you know big stars in seventies and eighties. Do you have any, uh, I mean, I'm a huge fan of Spotify. I use Spotify probably like two hours, two to three hours per day. Uh, um, like, I don't know. I feel like there's there are a lot of features in it that maybe I haven't explored. I certainly use Discover Weekly. Um, but do you have any recommendations for products I should check out? Like, for example, okay, so when you're when you want to listen to 70s music, are you like going to the radio feature or how are you discovering 70s music you want to hear? So normally I go to browse, so our uh, basically editorial playlist, and there you normally find out uh, music from different uh, era in the seventies, eighties, nineties, and we also have a good categorization of different music genres. So for me, normally that's the starting point. And for example, I jump into a let's say uh, rock music in eighties playlist. And I start looking to each track and check check the artist page. And then another feature I use is related artists. So that's a great place for expanding the view of the music horizon. When you're consuming music on Spotify, do you find yourself thinking about what what in machine learning, like what machine learning stuff has led to this song being generated to you? Or or do you feel like you don't have enough of a grip on how recommendations are made at Spotify that you can actually conclusively trace that? I would say, you know, from my own perspective, because I know how the machine learning models work. So when I listen to, for example, Discover Weekly, I can sort of, you know, I mean, I can certainly sense, you know, how the <laughs> recommendations are made. And I think... I also talk to some of my friends who use Discover Weekly uh, often. And I think, you know, as a user outside Spotify, I think people can always can also sense, you know, how it's generated because one mm-hmm. common, let's say, uh, you know, uh, feedback I got is people say, okay, you know, feels like this playlist or Discover Weekly is sort of personalized for my taste because there are lots of music people sort of recognize in terms of genres or the mood or the, the artist type. Yeah, definitely. Well, Boxen Zhang, thanks so much for coming out to Software Engineering Daily. It's been super interesting talking to you about Spotify and data science and machine learning and all this stuff. Um, uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. It's also my pleasure uh, to talk to you. <laughs>